Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. I'm joined today by Angelos Damascos, who is the fund manager of two specialist resource funds that are right at the heart of investors' current debates about where the markets are heading. The two funds are Junior Gold and Junior Oil. You've been running these funds for about 10 years now, I think. So it's fair to say that you've lived through a whole cycle in the resources uh, business. Uh, we had a very strong bull market, followed by a, a quite a savage bear market. And now we're at a point where the, where the market appears to have turned, or at least to have bottomed anyway. And that's what we'd like to talk about today, if that's okay. If we can start in this sort of general picture of where the resources sectors, oil on the one hand, gas and gold and metals, what has been the pattern as you've seen in the last 18 months? When did the uh, the markets at bottom and why do you think that was at that particular point? Well, the, the cycle for the two commodities, if you like, or the two subsectors are slightly different. Uh, the junior oil equities peaked uh, sometime in March 2011 and they started a little bit of a downtrend uh, for two or three years, and then a, a, a mini up cycle uh, during the course of uh, 2013, early 14, before the, the savage drop in the oil price in late 2014 took hold and, and decimated the values of most companies that are involved in exploration and production. On the other hand, the gold equities have uh, also seen their high in 2011, but uh, went into a much longer and very severe bear market pretty quickly after thereafter because the gold price had peaked just above 1925 and then subsequently dropped to as low as $1,000 uh, early in 2016. Uh, and most gold equities were absolutely decimated over that five-year period. So... Uh, Slightly different uh, cycles with different severity, I would say, for the two commodities. But nevertheless, we started coming out of both uh, down cycles uh, in the early part of 2016. So obviously this has got nothing to do with the original cycle, had nothing to do with more recent events that have dominated headlines like Brexit and Trump and so on. Mm -hmm. um, what was the trigger for the, uh, the turn in the markets uh, in the spring, summer last year? Well, I think uh, as far as uh, oil is concerned, uh, we saw the lows uh, sometime in February 2016, uh, just around $26 a barrel for, for the lighter crude oil of WTI, which is the American crude. Uh, and since then, we have bounced back up to over 50, uh, up to $55. Now we are trading around 50 or so. Uh, so there was a significant recovery in the commodity price, uh, and, and uh, as it, it often happens in bear markets, both commodity prices and equity prices tend to overshoot. So in February last year, we saw a dramatic low uh, in both commodities and equity values, and we have recovered significantly since, but we are nowhere near the highs we saw uh, two or three years ago. So at the time, of course, that the reason for... Uh for the commodities to hit bottom was a combination of fundamentals, but also investor sentiment becoming very negative, as always tends to happen at the at the turning points in the cycle. Right. So as a contrarian investor, you you obviously uh, spotted that moment uh, with great accuracy, or did you not? In fact, we did, because we assisted a, a private equity acquisition of some uh, light oil production up in Canada uh, that was... Uh, absolutely to the point of the lowest you know, turning in the cycle. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, these are opportunities that I believe occur once in a decade. 
and and they tend to give you quite a long window uh, of uh, opportunity to to enter into the market and that but that of course predicates that you have cash available to yes. enter into the market so those who had the ability and the luxury to deploy capital at the lowest point in the cycle and had the nerves to deploy capital at that level have obviously done very well and could do a lot better in the next couple of years. Because you're obviously running uh, open-ended funds, uh, uh, unit trusts and OICs. When uh, investors take their money out, you have to sell some shares that you own in order to, uh, to fund those redemptions on top of the actual impact of the commodity prices. Right. Well, it, it can be quite difficult, actually, to run funds such as ours that are very sector-specific in a highly volatile subsector because, uh, it, as it often happens, investors tend to get scared in, in dramatic uh, drops in, in equity values and, and bear markets and tend to want to withdraw to redeem their shares. And we, as fund managers, are in, in need to create the liquidity to fund these redemptions. Uh, our funds are typically daily traded uh, with daily liquidity, so we, we have to be pretty quick and instant in our liquidation of portfolio holdings to, to generate the liquidity. So it can be difficult and tricky to generate that liquidity in a falling market because obviously in smaller capitalization shares, the, the liquidity vanishes and no one wants to buy. So uh, our strategy to uh, prevent problems in such a situation has been to always have a very high proportion of the funds in fairly liquid companies that have a significant uh, daily trading liquidity and therefore is relatively more straightforward to generate liquidity for redemptions. Uh, the other uh, aspect, of course, is because uh, we have thousands of retail investors, not all the investors want to redeem at one, at one time on the, on the same day. So it, it's usually a very gradual uh, wave, if you like, of redemptions coming in that gives us the ability and the time to generate the liquidity and manage the funds accordingly. So let's talk about what's been happening in the last uh, year then since the, the market started to turn. Obviously, your uh, performance has been good and reflected on the, the, the rise in commodity prices uh, and uh, your own uh, stock selection. But have you actually seen fund flows back into the funds yet? In other words, do you think that there's still quite a lot to come on that front? Well, it, it has been uh, very dramatic and very quick uh, to see uh, inflows into our gold fund last year. Uh, and I believe that was a function of uh, the early part of the gold bull market uh, being fueled by speculators and more specialist investors who tend to be rather shorter term and quick to react to a change in the trend. So we saw a dramatic inflow into our gold fund uh, in the first six months of last year. But then as the, the, the mini cycle, if you like, peaked uh, towards August, September, we saw equally quick and dramatic outflows into November, December, uh, which was again a, a mini low point. Uh, having said that, uh, since the beginning of the year, we have again seen significant inflows. So it looks like at this point in time, as far as the gold uh, market is concerned, investors uh, tend to believe that we are in a new uptrend and a new leg of a bull market. Well, let's just talk about that. I mean, let's, let's focus on the gold then for a moment. How far is, is what's been happening uh, in terms of the gold price, do you think, is it a function of political uncertainty? And how far uh, is it a function of 
changes in supply and demand or how far a function of changes in interest rates. Those seem to be the sort of main factors at, at work here. Which, which of those is the most important, would you say? Well, uh, Jonathan, I'm sure you, you have heard me say this before, but I, th- I think gold is in a very long-term bull market still. It started some, somewhere around 2001, 2002, when it reached $250, $300 an ounce. And uh, it is clear now with hindsight that in 2011, uh, speculative flows and investment flows pushed it too high to 1925 or, or thereabouts. So perhaps that was one of those occasions where the market exceeds expectations and pushes the commodity price way above the mean. Uh, and, and we needed the correction. Uh, in, in the scheme of things, in such a long cycle, we endure a five-year bear market down to $1,000 an ounce. But this is still four or five times the level it was at in 2001-2002. So we are on a massive uptrend still. Since then, we have started uh, rising. We reached about 13.50 earlier um, in uh, 2016. We are now trading around 12.20 uh, or so. So it, it, I, I believe that uh, the, the long uptrend of gold, which has been fueled by the quantitative easing, by the printing of money, subsequent to the financial crisis, obviously the central banks have been trying to help the financial markets by uh, injecting significant liquidity and and pushing interest rates to all-time lows. Um, And and all of that has generated a very fertile uh, background and economic conditions for gold to continue to rise. So now we have uh, significant political uncertainty, both in the Eurozone as well as in America. Uh, I believe that uh, the, the Trump administration has overpromised and will likely underdeliver, and therefore all of these things could create uh, a further incentive for investors to allocate a little bit more in the portfolios into gold and gold equity shares. And that presumably is even more the case for uh, people who are investing in sterling, which is which your fund is is, is a sterling fund, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, the fund is denominated in sterling, but the majority of the portfolio is held in uh, Canadian and Australian listed companies. Right. Uh, and the main reason for that is because the, there is a much greater universe of companies listed on those exchanges. So it enables us as fund managers to screen and select the companies that we believe offer fundamental value. But uh, a secondary consideration has always been in our mind that uh, we want to avoid exposure to sterling and to the US dollar notwithstanding the fact that the US dollar has been very strong so far, we have been right avoiding sterling exposure because of the devaluation as a result of Brexit. Um, And uh, therefore, that has been an additional uh, bonus in terms of the valuation of of the units for the fund. So that's been a positive. Can I uh, tempt you into uh, making a prediction of where you think the gold price could return to? If it's in a long-term secular bull market, could it go back to $2,000 an ounce? Is that possible? It is very possible, I think, but it's always a function of what happens in the world. Uh, the central bankers are very, very committed to saving the financial markets and saving the monetary system uh, with whichever measures they can deploy. The question is, have they already deployed the main arsenal uh, available to them and, and will they be able to use again the same tactics if we get into another financial crisis. 
So uh, assuming uh, all else being equal uh, in, in the current uh, environment, as far as one can foresee, I, I think it's not unreasonable to expect to see gold back to around 1500 or so in the next uh, year or two years. Having said that, if we were to enter into a new political crisis in the Eurozone, which we all know is very possible, given the debt problems of not only Greece, but some of the other uh, states, uh, including Spain, Italy, and even France, uh, which is going through its own elections uh, at the moment, uh, this month. And, um, you know, we have had banking crises so far. We just avoided the banking crisis in Italy. Uh, Deutsche Bank, one of the largest banks in the world, has called the market for an enormous capital injection to restore its balance sheet. So it's clear that uh, the things are very fragile in the Eurozone and, and, and the financial sector is not in a very, very strong health. Uh, anything that could happen to cause a crisis would place enormous strain on the ECB to rescue the system again. And who knows what sort of measures will they deploy this time? So that's one scenario that would be positive for gold, some kind of financial crisis. On the other hand, there are people who, who actually think that the bigger threat is inflation rising significantly. What do you think about that? Well, well, I have a very strong view on inflation, and I think the evidence is that it is rising very rapidly at the moment, uh, which is the main reason why I think gold is realistically could reach $1,500 an ounce in the next couple of years. Um, we, we are seeing now very rapid inflation in the UK, primarily because of the devaluation of sterling. So all the imports in the UK uh, have to be repriced 10-15% above what they were last year. We are seeing uh, an inflationary impact of the rebound in commodity prices in, nat in natural gas and oil, uh, and that will feed into inflation. We have seen uh, since the beginning of last year a, re a significant recovery in base metals, iron ore, copper, aluminium, all of the met base metals, zinc, that are primary inputs to the manufacturing processes around the world, primarily you know, for, for the producing countries such as China, are ultimately going to feed into the cost of production and the, the retail prices uh, of uh, imported goods. So all of these indications um, are, are very, very suggestive of much higher inflation rates, uh, and that has not even taken into account the protectionist measures of uh, the Trump administration and perhaps some uh, problems with uh, trade now with Brexit. You know, if we have uh, even the slightest restriction on the movement of goods, that will impose a cost on, on trading uh, across the Eurozone and therefore be inflationary. So there are many, many solid indicators that inflation is likely to rise uh, significantly over the next couple of years. Uh, and the question is, will the central bankers catch up with this inflation and raise the interest rates or will they lag uh, because they are trying to still shore up the economy, they are still trying to sort of uh, encourage the banks to, to finance uh, businesses and therefore create the, the environment for real inflation, which is always very, very supportive of gold prices. Exactly. Let's just talk a little bit about gold and gold equities then, because your gold fund invests in gold equities, not in right. gold or metal itself, and they obviously tend to be even more highly geared to the commodity cycle than uh, than, than gold itself. Right. So, um, if your if your uh, scenario is correct, we would logically expect to see mining equities do even better than the metal. Is that correct? That's correct. 
uh, and that's a function of the, the impact on their profitability as a result of the rise in the commodity price. Uh, you know, the easiest example is to think of a producer of gold that uh, produces, say, for with all-in marginal cost of production of about $800 an ounce. If they manage to sell their product at the current about $1,200 an ounce, they make a $400 uh, profit. If the commodity price rises to, say, $1,400, which is approximately a, a, a 20% rise uh, in the commodity price, the profitability of the miner will increase by 50%. So you can see immediately the massive impact the rising commodity price can have on the bottom line of a miner, and therefore the projected earning stream that ultimately drives the share price. So the, the mining equities historically have been much more volatile than the commodity price, and we have seen it in the bear market, which has been very, very savage indeed. Uh, but uh, they, they have also responded equally dramatically and quickly last year with the expectation of much higher commodity price. Now, we, we, you know, we had a massive rise up to about uh, August, September for most of the good quality producing companies, followed by a, a sharp uh, sort of correction, if you like, uh, back to December in the region of 25-30%. Uh, and now this year we have seen again a recovery with, with uh, very, very solid gains. And I think uh, if we are right about the commodity, we, we should see very, very strong returns from uh, share prices of the quality mining companies. And by quality, the way we define it is um, we want to invest in companies that have a solid production, but also very attractive growth uh, prospects by utilizing the reserves in the best possible way and extracting the reserves in the most efficient manner, but also having the balance sheet strength to finance uh, projects and also to withstand short-term weakness in the commodity price. Because it, the reality is that a lot of the companies in the in the gold money sector, um, excluding those that have now gone bust or out of business, only a, only a minority actually have gold production and have the potential to actually fund future exploration. So those are the companies that you're looking for. Remember, you're not taking kind of blue sky exploration risk. No, uh, there are very very few companies that are in the exploration stage that uh, perform well during the we say recovery bull market of last year. Uh, and those were the companies that had outstanding reserves, that had already found significant deposits that are ready to move into production in the next two or three years. And, and these are, uh, interestingly enough, the most attractive takeover targets for the middle or larger size producing companies that are starved of you know, growth. Uh, so, if you had invested exclusively in blue sky exploration last year, you wouldn't have done as well as if you had invested in the mid-cap producing companies of the likes that we, we, will, we have focused on. If we enter into a, a dramatic bull market for the gold price, say if we reach 1500 very quickly, then it's clear that uh, in the mad scramble by investors to, to allocate to the sector, they, they will probably lift all the boats. But uh, having seen the volatility in the sector and having lived through the dramatic bear market of over five years, 
we always uh, urge caution because you know when the, the, when the momentum changes and when the sentiment changes, the, the drops in the early stage companies are so severe that it's almost impossible to to get out, coupled by the lack of liquidity. So, are you expecting uh, to see uh, more M and A activity in in the sector? It sounds like you are. Um, but also presumably quite a lot of fundraising as well. Yes, uh, we, we have been very cautious in the fundraisings. Uh, obviously, brokers and companies tend to come to the market to raise equity at the highest uh, possible valuation for their companies. So we, we have to be very, very careful that uh, what we are buying is not uh, overvalued. So we have been very, very selective in the fundraisings we have participated uh, in, uh, but uh, in terms of uh, M&A activity, we have already had uh, at least three portfolio holdings that were taken out last year, either merged with larger companies or, com- or taken out over uh, altogether. And I think uh, this is going to continue very significantly this year. Uh, most of the larger companies have a natural inertia uh, in selecting their targets, and they, they naturally wait for the momentum to change before they they sharpen their pencils and focus on on particular targets. Uh, So I think uh, most companies will take advantage of this dip we have seen from September last year to uh, January this year and and will start sort of placing deals in the next uh, six months. Let's now switch to the oil and the junior oil fund. First of all, uh, do you have a prognosis for the oil price? Uh, Before we look at the companies, the kind of companies you're investing, what would your prognosis be there? I think we, we have uh, seen the lows in the oil markets uh, early in 2016. Since then, we have risen significantly from those lows, uh, reached uh, up to $58 for, for Brent. So I'm, I'm comfortable that we are now in a trading range between $50 and $60 per barrel for the next uh, six months or so. But first of all, we've had OPEC change the tune. Uh, OPEC, particularly Saudi Arabia, realized that they effectively shot their foot when they uh, talked uh, down the oil price in 2014 and and refused to cut production. They returned uh, to the table uh, late last year and they decided to cut production by a significant amount. They agreed with uh, OPEC and non-OPEC producers to cut by about 1.3 million barrels a day. And that was very significant in restoring the supply-demand balance uh, to a certain extent. But the restoration of this supply-demand balance has always been a, a function of the production cuts we have seen through the dramatic fall of the of the oil price. Obviously, many companies went bankrupt, particularly the smaller ones. Uh, most of the others had to do some sort of a financial restructuring to address their debt. Uh, they had to stop producing from the higher marginal cost uh, fields. So there has been a dramatic shutting in of production around the world that has corrected the the previous oversupply and it's clear that we were in a dramatic oversupply in the year 2014. Now some people argue that when OPEC restarts production it could immediately cause an oversupply particularly as the North American uh, industry has regrouped and and has started growing production again. Our thesis is that uh, the two years of dramatic bear market in the oil markets has 
has cut so much of the capital expenditure, which is a vital element in, in the future production, uh, by very uh, sort of solid sources, uh, analysis we have seen, uh, we believe that the, the natural decline of the existing productive capacity of the world is, is in the region of 7 to 8% per annum. So if we think that we are consuming about 95 million barrels per day, we, we need at least 7 to 8 million barrels every year of the natural decline to, to, to come from new, from new production. So however quickly the North American industry regroups and, and grows production again, it possibly will not make up for the dramatic drop in production from other mature bases that have seen a dramatic cutback in capital expenditure. In addition to that, most of the capital expenditure has uh, targeted the exploration projects. So companies were unwilling to risk their precious dollars drilling exploration wells when we were in an oversupply situation. And that makes total sense, is, is common sense, and that's what companies do. But uh, the resulting inertia of, of uh, management teams and companies to accelerate, again, capital expenditure and fund exploration drilling could result in a significant lag in the growth of production again. So we think that uh, by the middle of uh, this year, towards the, the third quarter of, of this year, we, we will probably be in a short supply situation again. And we will start drawing on the dramatic inventory that has accumulated around the world. There are still, there is quite a lot of oil still in stock. Of course. There is yeah. a lot of oil in the tanks. Yeah. Uh, and that is a big uh, sort of buffer that needs to be drawn back and consumed before prices you know, firm up significantly again. But uh, come next year, we think that uh, we are very likely to be in a short supply situation again, uh, when prices could rise uh, well above $70. So uh, my prediction is that uh, early next year, we will see oil well above $70. And could it go back to 100, do you think? Or is that uh, unrealistic? Well, you know, never say never, I guess, in this market. It's, it's highly volatile. But uh, given the, the technology, given the, the huge reserves that have been identified in North America, uh, the efforts by many operators to identify shale reserves elsewhere around the world, you know, there are big uh, question marks about the Argentinian shale plays. Uh, about some plays in uh, the Middle East. Uh, you know, there, there are many projects that were started in the bull market years that have been put on the shelf, so to speak. So the question is, how quickly will the companies regroup and, and put this back into the growth uh, plan again? Um, so who knows? I, I doubt that we will reach $100 very quickly. It might take uh, three to four years, and that depends on how quickly the, the growth in demand will happen. But um, I think somewhere between seventy and ninety dollars is quite realistic for the next two to three years. So, turning to the fund, if that is your view, how are you investing the fund to to benefit from that? In other words, are you do you have a similar kind of strategy where you're looking for existing producers, or are you investing in companies that have uh, projects that might uh, mature during the seventy to ninety dollar phase and therefore make a lot of money? How do, how do you go about that? Well. We have always focused on the exploration and production focused position companies. So by virtue of, of this strategy, we have to look at companies that have uh, existing reserves 
as well as a significant uh, growth in the production profile. Now, during the bear market years, we have uh, positioned the, the portfolio very defensively, focusing on the companies that had a, a stronger capital base, a, a firmer balance sheet that were able to sustain themselves through the weak years. Uh, now, in, in the last year or so, we have started looking at the more prospective uh, companies, the companies that, uh, first of all, have survived the bear market, but also now have much uh, greater prospects for growth and, and are also very attractive acquisition targets. Uh, because let, let's face it, when, when the oil prices recover sufficiently and the big companies see that exploration drilling is not going to yield results very quickly, they will again look at the, the proven reserves to buy and, and put them in production as quickly as possible. So uh, it's a combination of... Uh, uh, Production with sufficient uh, uh, sufficient capacity to sustain a bear market, but also significant reserve base that can be accelerated and put in production in the near future to grow the value of the company. So, if I look at a, uh, a list of your holdings in the fund now um, and compare it to say what you had eighteen months ago, mm-hmm. would it be very different, or would it be would it be similar? What would can you give me some uh, flavour around the kind of things you've got rid of and the kind of things that you've, uh, you're now investing in? Well, it has changed significantly, but many of the core portfolio holdings have not. Uh, and what you see in our top 10 positions at the moment are some holdings that we have held in the fund for a while that uh, saw very depressed valuation during the bear market and have recently jumped back up again because investors realize First of all, that they have they are survivors, and secondly, the, the inherent value in their assets. The prime example of our portfolio is Questair Energy, which we have held for over five years now, and we have traded a little bit uh, in the holding as a function of the the change in the portfolio, change in the size of the fund, because we had to adjust the portfolio weight. Uh, and also, we took advantage of the previous uh, high in the market to take some profits. But Questair, a year ago, was probably a, a 2% holding in the fund. And without buying a single share, it has now jumped to the top position being an 8% weight in the fund. And that's because we've always believed that this company not only had the production capacity to sustain operations and, and keep uh, the lights on, so to speak, but it had this enormous reserve base that could be uh, revalued significantly when the conditions were right. Uh, and, and what happened, uh, in fact, uh, late last year was that there was a, a slight change in legislation in, uh, in the province of Quebec in Canada that uh, has allowed uh, the, the fracking of hydrocarbon wells. And, and uh, Quest there is a 25% partner in the largest land base uh, in Quebec, holding uh, enormous gas reserves in partnership with uh, Repsol, the oil giant. And... Uh, by the assessment of the company with its independent engineers, they reckon that uh, their their share, their 25% share in the Utical shale, uh, could hold uh, in excess of 1 billion barrels of oil. Which would be huge for a Which, company of its size, yeah. Yes, I mean, the company is cap- currently capitalized in the region of 180, 200 million Canadian, you know, a billion barrels by any, uh, you know, conventional metric in terms of uh, M&A activity, could be worth, you know, over a billion. 
Absolutely. So, so there's um, a lot of there's a lot of potential upside there anyway. That's, that's right. So that's why we still hold it and we haven't sold the share since the re-rating of the company because we think that uh, there is potentially a lot more value to come. Let's take another couple of other examples out of here. I mean, how much? Obviously, by definition, a lot of the exploration uh, uh, and deproduction that's going on is is in uh, sort of frontier countries, I suppose you could say, uh, with a high degree of political risk. So, how do you how do you how do you factor that into your stock selection? Well, we we, we like uh, emerging. We have always liked emerging provinces, emerging uh, frontiers of oil production. Uh, particularly companies that had uh, the first mover advantage, that had accumulated enough acreage uh, to justify exploration drilling by other much larger companies. And the strategy of such players is that uh, they buy the acreage or rather they secure the acreage under license from the government. They do some seismic drilling, they identify their targets and then invite oil majors to come and drill because drilling offshore wells typically costs $100-$200 million. So it's it's the domain of the big boys. Um, and, and, but uh, we, we don't invest just on the expectation of the drilling campaign. We, we like to invest in companies that have already found something, that have identified the reserves, and then progress with their partners to further delineate the size of the resource and, and prove it up and add to the reserve base. Uh, and we have been very fortunate to have uh, two, two very big successes, one in the name of uh, FAR Limited, which uh, operates in Senegal, which uh, with its partners, uh, Conoco Phillips at the time, and uh, Cairn Energy identified a very sizable resource, uh, a, a very, very large uh, field uh, offshore Senegal, which they have been working for the last couple of years to drill and, 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 and delineate the production potential. So again, this is a company that uh, has enormous value to derive from this uh, delineation program. Uh, and therefore, we think uh, there is a fairly limited downside. So there is a significant upside potential with limited downside risk. So this is what we like, even though the company doesn't have production of its own, doesn't have a cash flow generating capacity. What was the other one you mentioned? The other too? one was uh, a company called Carnarvon Petroleum that has also been fortunate to uh, find uh, with its partner, originally Apache of America, a very large uh, uh, gas and oil reserve in the northwest shelf offshore Australia. Uh, Apache has since sold uh, their stake to a, a private equity uh, operator called Quadra Energy in Australia that have drilled another successful well very recently and are now drilling the, the fourth well in the series that uh, could further add to the resource base. Uh, so again, fairly limited downside by virtue of what they have found and very significant upside as the engineers work to refine their projections and understand better the quantum of uh, the reserves held in those deposits. And what, just on one specific, I know a lot of people are interested in, what, what's your view about the companies that are in the Falkland Islands? And, uh, have you invested in those and uh, what do you think about the prospects of them? Well, we, we never touched uh, the companies operating in the Falkland Islands, uh, even in the heady days of uh, 2005, 2006, when it was the flavor of the month and you know the, their shares were flying very high. Uh, because our... Uh, Engineer, our petroleum engineers thought that uh, 
in the Falkland Islands, by virtue of the location of the deposits and the, the political uncertainty and what have you, the, the companies would need to identify you know, several billion barrel potential targets to encourage the, the large operators to come in and drill and, and, and move the, the oil to production. So we're still very cautious on the Falklands. We don't like the operators. Uh, you know, in, in fact, we, uh, Premier Oil used to be a big holding in our fund until they invested in the Sea Lion prospect uh, in, in, in joint venture with Rock Hopper. And immediately upon hearing this venture, we sold out of Premier Oil. And that was a very fortunate uh, move because we avoided the, the catastrophic slide of, of this company. And, and Premier, this move of Premier is a classic uh, sort of uh, signal, a, a classic case of uh, the executive team thinking that they are too big for their own shoes. They had enormous success in the North Sea, in Pakistan and, and other areas where they had significant growth in production from identified reserves. And they decided that they needed to find something spectacular, something that could you know, move them up the scale several times. And, and they participated in Falklands and it was to, to the great detriment of the company. So it is important to, to pick the right managements as well as uh, the right prospectivity of the, of the resources. It's not Absolutely. just about what's in the ground, it's about who's actually making the decisions above ground. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Management is paramount. And we have made our own mistakes, you know, backing the wrong management team in our, in our time. Uh, you know, no, no one in this industry, which is so unpredictable and so volatile, can claim, you know, 100% success. But uh, as long as we, we maintain the same parameters, broadly speaking, uh, we, we should, you know, do relatively better than the whole sector. Obviously, there's been a significant uh, recovery in uh, in a number of, of oil company share prices. They lo it looks quite dramatic in absolute terms because it's 70, 80% or something like that. But of course, it's only a, gone a very little way back towards the kind of levels that they were at before. Right. So um, uh, if, if you're right about the oil price and if you're right about the, um, the likely uh, M&A activity, how far back towards the peak do you think this sector could go? Well... Uh, we are still not even halfway where we were in 2011. So I, I think the sector has a long way to go to recovery, to full recovery. Um, and uh, it, it uh, should come in stages. Uh, obviously, as we, we explained earlier, this, uh, the smaller capitalization companies tend to be much more volatile and tend to be influenced by the overall market sentiment but they are grossly undervalued still in relation to the mid and larger capitalization companies. Uh, if you look at the chart, for example, of Royal Dutch Shell or, or even BP, they have recovered significantly, you know, most of the lost value uh, during the bear market. Whereas uh, if you look at the small to mid cap players, most of them have not, most, most of uh, are way below the 50% uh, retracement. So, uh, as, as the market is, gets more convinced that the oil price is on an upward trajectory, even if you know, no one believes that we'll get back up to $100 a barrel, they will focus on the most prospective opportunities and the most undervalued companies, which tend to be the, the very oversold and, and undervalued smaller capitalization companies. So again, we, we have to focus on the better quality companies 
because these are the, the natural survivors in any environment. But uh, we think that the, there's still a lot of value to be extracted from the smaller companies as they relate to the full potential. Angelos, thank you very much for your time and uh, giving us a comprehensive survey of what's going on in, uh, in your sectors. And uh, let's see whether your predictions are right. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Thank you very much. Jonathan. Thank you. You have been listening to a Moneymakers podcast hosted by the author and professional investor, Jonathan Davis. An archive of all our podcasts can be found on the website www.money-makers.co and also on iTunes and several other popular podcasting channels. We are an editorially independent business with a primarily educational purpose. If you are interested in investment and have enjoyed this conversation, I do hope you'll join me again for more discussion of current topics with leading professional investors. Thank you for listening.